may be seated. Thank you, Phil, for leading us this morning in song. Songs, as as he mentioned it already as well, are incredibly rich in their words. And I think you know that I go pretty slow, and and I think I think this is the thirty second sermon in Ephesians, and we're finishing up at the halfway point. Uh, so there's going to be sixty plus sermons, Lord willing, and in uh, Ephesians, so we do definitely go slow. We take our time to savor every verse and every phrase of the Bible. Well, today we have arrived at an especially important text. Let us read these verses together as we finish our exposition of Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. I'm just going to read two verses this morning. I want you to know this morning in Ephesians chapter 3, that these two verses come, as we have probably already talked about, these two verses come at the very end of a prayer by Paul for the church at Ephesus. And this is a doxology to our Lord. He says this in chapter 3, verse 20, Now to him, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, According to the power that works within us, to Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. That's Paul praying to the Father, that he is ascribing glory to the Father. Well, speeches made in the heat of battle or conflict tend to be memorialized. Who can forget these lines? Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Or what about this one? Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked. At the beginning of World War II, there was another Another speech, which was arguably one of the more famous in history. Perhaps it is famous because of its excellent use of the English language. Or because, maybe, because of its superb delivery. Perhaps it is famous simply because of all that was riding on it. You could reason that the future of our Western culture was riding upon the words of Winston Churchill. Churchill gave this speech in early June of 1940. British troops had suffered a horrific defeat in the Battle of France. There was still, in England, great opposition to the war. Many believed that Adolf Hitler could be appeased. But Britain, under the leadership of Churchill, had chosen to fight. During an early battle, this early battle, Allied forces became cut off. Uh, from troops south of the German penetration, and they were trapped at Dunkirk. This was certainly not a great beginning to a war that had to be won. And on May 26th, an evacuation of troops called Operation Dynamo began. The evacuation was an incredible effort. The Royal Air Force 
valiantly kept the German forces at bay, while at the same time thousands of ships, military destroyers to small fishing vessels, were used to ferry the French and British troops to safety. They were, they were able to save 338,000 troops in this way. Far more than anyone thought was possible. Most thought all was lost. And on June 4th, Churchill spoke before the House of Commons giving a report which celebrated the miraculous delivery at or deliverance at Dunkirk. And in making this speech, Churchill urged his people to fight a seemingly unwinnable war. In the speech, he promised that the British would fight with valor to the end. Let me read you the final flourish of Churchill's famous speech. He says this, We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And even if, which I do not for a moment believe, this island or a large part of it were subjugated and starving, then our empire beyond the seas, armed and guarded by the British fleet, would carry on the struggle. Until in God's good time, the new world with all its power and might steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of old. Beloved, those are powerful words of a commanding oratory. They make me want to stand and fight even though World War II ended 75 years ago. But I'm most struck by the fact that he left his most powerful words to the end. This morning we find ourselves at the end of Ephesians chapter 3. The final two verses closed out, which close out the first full section of Ephesians. And like Winston Churchill, the Apostle Paul has left his most powerful words to the end of this section. Just as Churchill used powerful rhetoric to convince the British people to carry on in a war which seemed unwinnable. Just like him, he, he and to convince then the, the Americans they must join the fight, the Apostle Paul uses this powerfully written letter to convince the Ephesian church to carry on despite his current circumstances, he was in prison, and despite their difficult situation. As we have discussed many times, Paul understood the strategic importance of the church at Ephesus in taking the gospel to the Gentiles. He knew that they needed to be fully engaged in the fight. He used the first two chapters of this incredible letter to explain the incredible work that God is doing in the church, or that is, doing in the world through the church. He has chosen to redeem the world through the church. Brothers and sisters, as we sit here today, do you realize that we are part of God's plan to redeem the world? Grace Bible Church, Grace Bible Church, this little church here in Gainesville is part of our Lord's plan to redeem the world. You and I are part of this incredible plan. This was Paul's message to the Ephesians. In chapter 1, he explained to them how God had saved them according to the riches of His grace, which He freely bestowed on, him, on them in Christ. Paul genuinely wanted them to understand what God had accomplished in saving them. And in 118, he says something incredibly profound. He says this, 
or he prays this. In chapter 1, verse 18, that the eyes of their hearts may be enlightened so that they would know what is the hope of his calling. What is the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? Church, Paul wanted them to fully understand what God had done in forming the church and giving us, the church, his very own power. He has placed us in the body of Christ, which Paul describes in chapter 1, verse 23, as the fullness of Christ as the fullness of Him who fills all in all. You see, the church is the full representation of Christ to a lost and dying world. We are the fullness of Christ. And we have been given the very power of God to accomplish His purposes. Now you may ask, and you probably should be asking, what are His purposes? Well, I think that that answer is found in Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Just before Jesus ascended into heaven, he commanded his disciples, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Then he says this. He commands us, his purpose is to, he commands us to make disciples of the nation, but he says this, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You see, he has given us uh, the purpose of making disciples of of all the nation, but he is with us. He has promised to be with us. You see, the Apostle Paul and the church at Ephesus were incredibly important parts of God's overall plan. Christ had promised in Matthew 16, 18 to build his church, but he did not leave the church alone to do that work. He promised to be with us. He promised to be with us throughout the church age. You see, God has commanded the church to make disciples of the nations, and He has also, though, guaranteed success in doing so. This is true because He's given His church, the church, His very own power. And He has given us boldness and confident access to Him through faith. And as I just said, we then therefore cannot fail. See, that is the thrust of Paul's appeal to the Ephesians in chapter 3, verse 13, when he asked them not to lose heart in his pettish tribulations. Ultimately, Paul may have been in prison. Paul may have been in chains. But the gospel itself is not in chains. Beloved, even now, even now, we are facing difficulty. We're not able to gather like we want to. The church is having to change the way we do things day to day to day. But the gospel, the gospel is still powerful. We have the message of hope. We have the message that the world needs even today. Later in his ministry, as Paul was facing certain death and martyrdom, and he says this in 2 Timothy 2.9, he says that he suffers hardship even as imprisonment, even to imprisonment as a criminal for the sake of the gospel. Then he says this, the word of God is not imprisoned. The word of God is not imprisoned. You see, the word of God is not affected by any pandemic. The word of God is not changed by some virus. Church, you can't imprison, you can't change the word of God. You cannot put the gospel in chains. The gospel flourishes during suffering. 
Paul's life is a model for suffering for the sake of the gospel. Later in 2 Timothy 2.10, he says this, For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. You see, Paul willingly suffered for the sake of those who were chosen. He gladly gave up his life so that others may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus. And he did so because he had grasped the eternal glory which God had promised to those who love him. And he also realized, beloved, that if we follow God's plan, we can never fail. We can never fail. The word of God is not in prison. The gospel is not in chains. If we fully trust him when things are at their bleakest, he will never fail us because he cannot fail. Oh, there will be times of failure. There will be times of gut-wrenching rejection. There will be times of heart-rending suffering. But Jesus promised to build his church and the gates of Hades would not overcome it. And as Tertullian stated, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. <coughs> I'll say this. Suffering is the fertilizer which causes true church growth. Suffering is the fertilizer which causes true, true church growth. I've said this before. I believe that Ephesians is the full explanation of Jesus' promise in Matthew 16, 18 to build his church. Paul gives this explanation as he encourages the, the Ephesian church to persevere in the face of great hardship and danger. And just as Winston Churchill urged the British and their allies to fight against the common enemy, in this letter to Ephesus, Paul urges the church to press forward in the fight. Here in the first two verses of chapter 3, I believe Paul reaches the climax of his argument. He wants the church to know that we serve a God who never fails. We serve a God who never comes up short. We serve a God who will never slumber nor sleep. That's Psalm 121 verse 4. We serve a God who is able. He is more than able. So as Paul completes this first section, section of Ephesians chapters 1 through 3, he praises God with four distinctives this morning. Four distinctives which can only be attributed to God. He is perfectly able, perfectly able to, number one, accomplish his will. He is perfectly able to first accomplish his will. Let me quickly remind you that we are studying Paul's prayer for the church at Ephesus, which begins in verse 14. A few weeks ago, we looked at the character of this prayer. If you will recall, we saw that effective prayer has a profound catalyst. In this case, Paul prays in response to the incredible truths that he had, been taught, that he had taught the church in the first two chapters. Second, we saw that effective prayer has a proper character. Notice that he, in verse 15, 14 and 15, he bows his knee in worship to the Father. Third, we saw that effective prayer has a precise center. Notice that Paul is praying to our Heavenly Father. Then following or starting in verse 16, we saw that the con we saw the content of this prayer. Paul prays in true two crucial ways for the saints. He prays that they would be granted spiritual strength in the inner man 
And he also prays that they would be given spiritual sensitivity so that they would be able to know and understand the love of Christ and experience the fullness of God. He prays in this way. He prays in this way so that the Ephesians would realize the full power of God which they have within them. Beloved, let me stop and apply this to our church. As I've said before, if the, I believe that if the Apostle Paul were here physically here today, he would give the same message to you. Nothing has changed. He would pray that you would be strengthened in the inner man and given spiritual sensitivity. He would want you to fully understand what God is doing in your hearts and in the church. You see, Christ is still building His church. He's building this church. He's building Grace Bible Church of Gainesville. He is still saving the lost as a demonstration of His power. You see, that is His will. And according to Paul, God is perfectly able to accomplish His will. So we've studied the character and content <coughs> excuse me, of Paul's prayer. Now let us look at the conclusion. Look, look with me at your text in verse 20. Paul writes, Now to him who is able to do. Let's stop right there. Paul directs his prayer here to praise the Father. This is commonly known as a doxology or a hymn of praise for God. Now this particular doxology ascribes glory specifically glory to the Father. And it serves as a fitting conclusion not only to his prayer, but to the first section of the letter. It also forms a transition to the final three chapters of this letter where Paul will teach the church how to walk before God and how to walk before the church and the world considering the doctrinal themes of these first three chapters. You see, Paul desires for the Ephesians to fully realize that God is able to accomplish everything that He pleases. Interestingly, the word translated able is similar to the Greek word for power. Said another way, God has the power to accomplish His will. You see, nothing can thwart Him. There is no authority or principality that is greater than our God. Do you remember? that in chapter 3, verse 10, that God demonstrates or makes known His manifold wisdom through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places? You see, He's demonstrating that nothing can stand in His way. Nothing can thwart Him. As the psalmist proclaims in Psalm 115, verse 3, our God is in the heavens. What does He do? Beloved, He does whatever He pleases. Earlier in chapter 1, verse 5, Paul says that he, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will. If God has set His love upon you, there is nothing that can prevent this from occurring. As a, as a Christian, God has perfectly planned everything in your life such that His plans cannot be frustrated. His plans for you cannot be changed. Amazingly, in chapter 1, verse 9, God has revealed the mystery of His will by sending His Son, our Lord Jesus, and, making, and in making us His church and inheritance. Beloved, God is able. 
He has the power to accomplish His will. He has purposed to build the church. He has chosen, as I said earlier, to make known His manifold wisdom to the rulers and authorities in the heavenlies through His church. He is elected to demonstrate His power in the church. Be a little bit more personal. He has decided to use you and me. Weak though we are. To carry out His purpose in making disciples of all the nations. And absolutely nothing Nothing can frustrate his plans for us. For Paul, this included imprisonment. Paul had been in prison for five years at this point when he wrote this letter. And, and Paul could confidently say, nothing, nothing can frustrate his plans. Not even chains. For the church at Ephesus, this included whatever challenges and suffering sufferings which may come. No matter what would come upon them. They served a God who was able to accomplish His will. For Grace Bible Church Gainesville, this includes any challenge which may come our way. Any challenge which may come our way. God is able to overcome. And God is able to use for His glory. In Romans 8, Paul asked the church at Rome in verse 35, he says, Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. Beloved, we serve a powerful God who is able to accomplish His will. Nothing can separate us from His love. Not trials or suffering, not persecution or hunger, not pandemic nor rogue government officials. Nothing can separate us from the power or from the love of Christ. God has never promised us to keep us from those things, right? He's never promised to keep us from those things, but He promises to keep us. Let's look at the second distinctive, which can only be attributed to God. He is perfectly able to answer our spoken and unspoken prayers. Look at your text in verse 20. It says, Now to Him who is able to far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. Here Paul continues his praise for God who is able to exceed all that we ask or think. The Holman Christian Standard Bible translates this verse, Now to Him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think. Here Paul stacks terms as is his habit. He's stacking terms. It's his habit when he wants to emphasize a concept that may be that is impossible to fully grasp and understand. He stacks his words to describe how God far, far, far exceeds, is well beyond, infinitely beyond all that we ask or think, that he can answer, the, he's able to do, that is. He uses the normal Greek word translated beyond, but he also uses the word translated all or everything. So God exceeds all that we ask or think. He's able to do, that is, all that we ask or think. As if that weren't enough, he uses a word which appears three times in the New Testament, all in Paul's writing. This word describes the highest form of comparison imaginable. So he's, he's not only saying that it's beyond all that we ask or think, but it's 
infinitely, beyond comparison. It's not even imaginable, the comparison. This word is translated exceedingly or infinitely. In other words, God can do far, can far exceed all that we ask or think beyond our wildest imaginations, beyond our most incredible dreams. And his answer to our prayers far surpasses not only what we can verbalize in prayer, but it also beyond anything that we could ever imagine. We're finite, beloved. We're finite. We're talking about the infinite. We're, we serve an infinite God. An infinite God that we can't completely fathom. This is true because of of the third distinctive which can only be attributed to God. God is perfectly able to apprehend all things. Perfectly able to apprehend all things. In this case, I'm using the word apprehend. We had a discussion in our men's group this morning about the meaning of apprehend. In this particular case, I'm using the word apprehend as a synonym for comprehend. Beloved, we are finite. We are limited in our ability to know and understand. On the other hand, as I've said, God is infinite. He is not limited in His ability to know. Look at your text. It says, Now to Him who is able, verse 20, to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. Brothers and sisters, God knows our needs and our desires far before they ever appear on our lips. He intimately knows our thoughts. He answers the longings of our heart according to His will. He knows all things. David affirms this truth in Psalm 139, verses 1-4. through Listen to this. In verse, Psalm 139, verse 1, it says, O Lord, You have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down. And when I rise up, you understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, behold, O Lord, you know it all. He knows it all. He knows our thoughts. He knows our paths. He is intimately acquainted with all our ways. He perfectly apprehends or perfectly comprehends all things. Said another way, there is nothing that escapes His comprehension and understanding. Nothing. And He perfectly answers our prayers according to His perfect knowledge. Because of this, because of this, His answers far exceed all that we could ever imagine them to. Here I'm reminded again of Romans 8. In Romans 8, verse 26, he says this, In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, and he who searches the heart knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. In other words, The Holy Spirit intercedes for us and prays in ways that we do not fully understand. According to Paul, 
in our weakness and my weakness and in your weakness, we don't know how to pray as we should. But the Spirit intercedes with groanings too deep for words. Now I want you to know this is not some secret prayer language. This is God understanding our limits. This is God understanding that we are finite. And He's interceding for us and He understands our weakness and He's praying for us. He understands all that we lack. So the Spirit prays for us in ways that we cannot fully understand. As such, think about this. When we suffer for His sake, we may not fully comprehend the reasons for our suffering. Therefore, our prayers are limited, right? We may be asking to get out of the suffering when in reality God wants us to go through the suffering because He knows what He's doing with the suffering. Yet we're limited. But He knows. And He intercedes for us. Think about this. The very next verse in Romans 8. I just gave you 26 and 27. The very next verse in Romans Romans 8 is verse 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. So what are the all things that He's talking about? If not the difficulties of life, the suffering. Have you ever wondered about Joseph's prayer? Joseph, you remember Joseph? Thrown to the bottom of the pit? My brothers threw him there, right? Thought he was going to be used by God, and here he finds himself at the bottom of a pit. You ever thought about what his prayers were? How he, how he might have been praying? It's probably, Lord, get me out of this pit. I know that's what my prayers would be. Do you think he fully fully understood what God was doing or would do through his life? What about when he was accused of trying to lay with Potiphar's wife and thrown in jail? Do you think he fully recognized, fully, I'm talking about fully, fully recognized God's plan for his life? He couldn't. Because he doesn't know the end from the beginning. But he trusted the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last and the beginning and the end. He trusted the one who knows the end from the beginning. He trusted the one who knows what he was doing. You see, in Genesis 50-20, he told his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. He trusted in the God who promises to protect and keep us. He didn't know everything, but he knew the God that does. Beloved, you don't know everything. You don't know how God is using your life. You don't know how God is using some difficulty that He's brought in your life. You don't know how He's using some challenge to grow you. But He does. Friends, where are you placing your trust? Are you trusting in the world which is passing away? Or maybe you're trusting in your own strength. Are you trusting in your riches? Maybe your education. Maybe you're trusting in the house that you live in. 
He's going to protect you. Do you think in terms of what you have instead of thinking in terms of the one who provides all that you need? Say that again. Are you thinking in terms of what you have instead of thinking of the one who provides all that you need? Beloved, He knows when you sit down. He knows when you rise up. He understands your thoughts. He scrutinizes your paths. He is intimately acquainted with all your ways. Even before there is a word on your tongue and a thought in your mind, behold, our Lord knows it all because He, is, he perfectly comprehends, He perfectly apprehends all things. This leads us to the fourth and final distinctive. God is perfectly able to abundantly exceed our wildest expectations. He is perfectly able to abundantly exceed our wildest expectations. Brethren, we must recognize our weaknesses. We must see that we all fall well short. As we have seen, our prayers fall woefully short. They, They are utterly defective because we don't completely understand things. Listen to Charles Spurgeon. It is a most delightful reflection that if I come to the throne of God in prayer, I may feel a thousand defects, but yet there is hope. I usually feel more dissatisfied with my prayers than I than with anything else I do. End quote. The point is, the point that Spurgeon is making here is that while our prayers may have a thousand defects, there is hope because the one we pray to is infinitely able to exceed all that we ask or think, to exceed all that we could ever imagine. And even more amazing, He works through us. He hears and He answers our defective prayers. He answers them. Look at your text. Look at your text. He answers them according to the power that works within us. Allow us to, as I I was thinking, especially that the third song we sang, the second or the first song in that last set, I was thinking 